0: Welcome back, series two of the Rippling Pages podcast. I've got more great writers making waves with the word. It also does mean a bit more of me, but I assure you, it will mostly be the writers. Who have I got for the first episode? Japanese literary translator and writer. Polly Barton. After studying philosophy at Cambridge, Polly moved to Japan to teach English. Describing herself as becoming hooked on the Japanese language, she eventually became a translator of novels such as Eiko Matsuda's Where the Wild Ladies Are, And Tomoko Shibasaki's Spring Garden. But it's the early experiences in Japan which have formed her own book, Fifty Sounds. Not only is Fifty Sounds an exploration of the Japanese language, as well as a thorny examination of linguistics, it's a tender journey to discover what it means to feel a sense of belonging in the world. Fifty Sounds also won the Fitzcarraldo Essay Prize in 2020 and Polly joined me to discuss that book for the first episode at the Rippling Pages podcast series two. I just wondered if you could start by talking about this idea of 50 sounds and why it provided a springboard for the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, 50 sounds is a direct translation of the Japanese word for their syllabary, which is a phonetic alphabet. And it's sort of. I've used that as a springboard, like you say, to to um, to frame the whole book. So the book is basically. I kind of think of it as an essay in fifty essays. Um, so it's fifty kind of semi-discrete entries, and each each one is based around a particular Japanese word. Just to complicate things even further, it I my, <laughs> it's always. I need to speak about this because it you know it ends up sounding so complex and my my aim with it was obviously although it's a highly conceptual idea to to kind of sneak that in and not you know not make it feel really kind of conceptually difficult but in introducing it it's maybe helpful to say that each of these words that I focus on is a an, an onomatopoeic word or a, or a mimetic word so Japanese has a huge number of mimetic bo- vocabulary um second in the world it's thought after Korean um, so it has m- many many more than than most Indo-European languages um and you know it, I think Within English, we, we have quite a kind of hazy conception of what onomatopoeia is, whereas in Japan, it's it's much um, there's a much clearer sense of what is and what isn't onomatopoeia. Where the, the, the mimetic language forms its own kind of word class. You know, in English, we have say the word splash or something like that, which is direct onomatopoeia, which I think most people would recognise as onomatopoeia, um, because it's You know the 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 sound of the word is emulating a sound. Other words, like for example, something like trudge, which I think some people might say was onomatopoeic. Other people would say wasn't, or you know would feel unsure. It's not emulating a sound, but it is emulating a a, a feeling or emotion or emotion or all of these. These are what I refer to as kind of mimetic words throughout the book.
0: The one thing that sort of popped out for me there is uh, onomatopoeia, mimetic language and English. It sounds like, I don't know if this is the case, but it sounds like in English it's considered a bit more juvenile, where in Japan it has a, I don't know, I don't think you call it a linguistic status, but it has a kind of status. I don't know if that's fair at all. Yeah, yeah. And
1: this is really fascinating, like that. There are certain areas of Japanese where you find this onomatopoeic, this mimetic language cropping up loads. And one of those is ch- with, with children's language, children's storybooks, which is the same in English. Um, but in Japanese, there's, there's a far wider application for lots of mimetic language. Um, and it doesn't carry that same infantile connotation. One of the like classic times when people might really crowd their language with this mimetic language is in describing something that happened. So let's say you see a, a, a video clip, and then you're asked to narrate what happened. You know, the man fell off the. House and then he slammed into the wall. What you know, least, it, yeah. and and that kind of description in Japanese would typically be crowded with these kinds of semantic
0: language. So it's a proper, it's a real way of communication of, of between. It's a real way to relate or narrate experiences um in a way that perhaps English wouldn't, or doesn't allow, or we don't utilize. Maybe without getting yeah. to well, I guess without getting to a thorny discussion of linguistic deterrence and relative, because it, it does skirt those boundaries, doesn't it? You, and, and you're in the opening pages, you kind of are negotiating your way around those um, really quite difficult and some seemingly endless debates about language and, and how it you know, relates to the uh, construction of, of, of our world, as it were.
1: Mm. Part of the book that I drafted and redrafted the most was definitely The Preface. And I think the reason was in order to do, in order to set up the rest of the book, I needed to give readers, you know, who may not be familiar with Japanese at all, some kind of knowledge around what I was going to be doing. But I also didn't want it to be so so involved and so dull that people would kind of fling the book away Um, or, or, you know, to give them a sense that like, this was what the rest of it was going to be like. I sort of wanted in a way to give people tools that they they could then forget about for the rest of the book, I suppose.
0: The book isn't about that, is it, really? It's about you and your experiences in Japan. The 50 sounds of real words that are used. I don't know if you could just give us an example of one and talk about how you kind of constructed the narrative out of that.
1: It's useful to say that the, the... Chapter titles for the 50 sounds are quite distinctive. So, each they take a specific form, which is this particular Japanese word, followed by a very specific and subjective definition, Um, very personal definition, which, you know, in many cases is essentially very wrong. Uh, you know it's, it's not purporting to, to actually define the word um I think there's a couple actually where I have just quoted directly from an actual Japanese English di- dictionary but but many of them are, are not like at all um and so each of the chapters deals with this particular word um and st- but they all engage with the words in, in quite different ways. So maybe like I'll give an example of a, a really um, short, one of the shortest chapters is called the sound of a ship leaving shore. Chapter titles go, that's a relatively straight up one and sound of a ship's horn is one of the meanings of Boar. And I kind of talk about the sound of, the ship and this vision that I had knowing that I was going to be leaving the island sort of for the last time and the kind of the incredible symbolism that it took on. This is just a, a very small selection and actually like choosing them was really hard.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and it, you know, it, it, the lineup, as I was working on the draft, the lineup changed a lot. Um, like some, some were there throughout and like related to particular memories um, that I knew that I wanted to include. Um, you know, and with some of them, like the link with my experiences is, is very clear and obvious and was easy in, in that respect. And, and, and others, I think it's much more tenuous and they're linked to kind of more philosophical, not philosophical ideas so much, but ideas that I was having throughout about language and, and so on.
0: Well what, um, well, what does that mean then to you? Because there is philosophy in there and you talk a lot about Wittgenstein.
1: I went to Japan immediately after graduating. Um, and in my final year um, of my degree, I studied mostly Wittgenstein and was really kind of obsessed with his ideas, specifically later. Wittgenstein and, and it's very much about philosophy as a way of moving away from the kind of the idea of, of the ideal and looking very much at, at the kind of specifics of experience. Um, and, and language as a, a naturally a messy phenomenon that evolves naturally. In societies and communities um and where the the meaning is is specific to those communities you know I, I was really sold on that as, as an idea as a way of thinking about things um but then I really felt like going to Japan and my experiences there just allowed me to experience that in a totally new way a way that felt like another, another dimension had been added to it my lack of familiarity with it just enabled me to see so much more than I could when the subject was English because you know this is another thing that Ben Wittgenstein says that the more you know that essentially familiarity um makes us incapable of seeing some of the most basic truths about what's going on you know um and i think that one of the one of the things that really being in japan and experiencing this new language all around me and also making a real effort to learn japanese was just what a kind of embodied process speaking a language is you know how I, I think because we have the written word and you know particularly within an academic context like a lot of our focus is on and written and written language and and, and reading um rather than actually spoken communication so much of of, of what we do is about so much of the way we interact with one another is about our behavior, our gestures, our you know our feelings and, 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 and learning learning the language as well was just such a kind of full body experience, I suppose. and all of the feelings that I was having, um, it felt like a real roller coaster and a real adventure. This idea from previous philosophers, and which he himself kind advocated at that certain points, that essentially like the, the key to understanding language and, and the world was to find the, the kind of pure logic at the heart of the language, you know, to, to see how actually <laughs> ridiculous that was in the light of of what I was perceiving language to be and what language learning was revealing itself to be um, was really mind-blowing for me. A revelation I thought I'd had the revelation learning it for the first time but actually like the real revelation when came when I went to Japan and experienced that for myself I suppose.
0: Wittgenstein, no I don't, I don't know a lot, I'm not a not an expert on him but he he wrote two book, well he wrote two I guess completed books about his philosophy the tractatus and um, investigation wasn't it yeah in uh, when you you start by talking about your education and the kind of some of your lectures you're in and, and Kant and Wittgenstein philosophy and I kind of got a sense that I don't know if dissatisfaction is the right word but there was something within that experience that you weren't that you are unfulfilled by, or maybe it was that sense of uh, familiar, you know, familiarity that, you know, you weren't getting whatever it is you wanted to get from this education. As it were, you would certainly get some things, and obviously, it's fantastic education. But just think about that idea of Wittgenstein, because these two works were, I guess, com- were they confounded of each other? They were They were very different, weren't they, in what he was proposing? And you talk a lot about errors, I've noticed you talk a lot about errors and education and having space to get things right and wrong. I just wondered if there was something within that then of Wittgenstein that you really did quite, uh, beside the philosophy, that you really took to kind of how or really quite admired about what you did.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I talk about this a bit in the book. Um, I I think I could have talked about it for much longer, but I was also worried with Wittgenstein of, of putting people up. With the Tractatus, you know, Wittgenstein kind of took the ideas of his predecessors, this idea of this pure logical philosophy, and and really carried it to its extreme version. And, you know, at that point when he did it, it was like he wrote a letter to his mentor, Russell, and said, I think I... Finally solved all of our problems. I know that that sounds. That'd be
0: Bertrand Russell, wouldn't it?
1: Bertrand Russell, yes. Yeah, yeah. um yeah, I believe I've I've solved all of our problems. You know, I've I've, I've solved philosophy. Basically, is what he was saying. You know, and he, and he I think for a few months he, he really believed that, and then started to kind of have these doubts, and these doubts essentially grew and grew and grew, and, and gave way to like a way of looking at the world that felt in many ways, opposite to what he expounds in the Tractatus. I mean, I think there are, in other ways there are lots of similarities, but you know, in, in terms of this kind of the purity and the kind of crystalline nature of the Tractatus versus this huge, like what seems to me what the investigation seems to me to be doing a lot of the time is essentially embracing the mess of, of what we've got in our human language. Um, and, and what's amazing to me is that he's so open about that as he's writing it, you know, and, and kind of openly saying, oh, well, I said this in the tractatus, but I was totally wrong. And, you know, this is, this is using himself and his own philosophy as an example of, like, how badly wrong you can go and the kind of errors that we're tempted to make. I found that really incredible, and I still find it really incredible and, and, and very rare, you know, to, I think...
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I wondered if if it is, if you believe that is quite a rare trait to...
1: I do think ...a it
0: scholar is. to embody.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I think it would be crazy to say that Wittgenstein was without ego, because when you read his biography, it's very, very clear that that wasn't the case. And anyone who ha- listening who hasn't read his biography by Ray Mom, should definitely go out and do that, because it's... You know, he had just the most extraordinary life and he was the most extraordinary character. He said very outrageous things to people, a, you know, on a daily basis. I mean, really, really.
2: The sound of a ship leaving shore. I saw it all the time, before it happened, after it happened. An event whose symbolic value far exceeded that of its actual happening. The ferry pulling away from the harbour for the last time, with me on it. There would be the whirring of the engines, the smashing of the gong as it pulled away, and then once it was onto the open water, the ferry would let out a deep bellow that seemed to emanate from its very bowels. I don't actually know now if the horn was ever sounded, but this was how I saw it in my head, and that image surpassed everything else. Bo is how you say the sound in Japanese, spoken, it is very low. Half animal and half mechanical, I'd learned it recently, and was fixated with it, but even that seemed a meager approximation of the sound of the ferry as I heard it in my head. That sound resonated forever.
0: We don't have space to do it. I guess just you know, look, I got this, I got this wrong. I made an error, yeah. uh, it kind of ties into. Um, it seems to be then a bit in 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 language and language use. It seems to be a bit of minefield but i'm talking about kind of just some quite very comical but these can lead to quite sort of um quite sort of visual feelings can't they i guess of embarrassment and, and in, in in some cases i guess shame but also just moments of true comedy as well
1: so that is like behind all of this is this emotion shame right um which i don't i suppose i don't mentioned by name that often in the book but I feel like a lot of it is grappling with shame and different kinds of shame and how that is involved in being in Japan often felt like a daily battle with, with that feeling and sort of staving it off and, in, and you know there are times when I wonder if like basically the only reason I set out to learn Japanese was because I couldn't bear that feeling. I found it so difficult to be making faux pas all the time that it was like, right, I need to, you know, I need to overcome this. And of course, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to do. Like the the, the, the best solution would be just to give up and go home or, or just to refuse to speak Japanese at all. Um,
0: well, you feel, well, this is a thing as well. You feel triumph. You know, we all would, you know, I, yeah. I would, but you feel sh- Triumph, uh, and yeah. you said it was like a daily battle, and that kind of triumph that you feel is yeah. comes through as well. And we're kind of reading yeah. along and going, "We're going, go on, Polly." <laughs> yeah, we're <rooting>. sort <laughs> of rooting for you. <laughs> but either way, you know, you yeah, you move to you move to Japan, and you you do seem to experience a lot of binaries in the world. Um, you know, there's right and wrong ways to use language. There's you talk a lot about feeling within the culture and outside the culture, and in and out of the language. Um, and then this idea of being immersed and distant.
1: I think there's a lot of lot to say about this, you know, I think, like to return to the kind of language learning thing, and again, this is something that we can sign wrote about. I sound like a broken record, but it, it is that you know we so often think about like, do you speak French, yes or no, like. Are you, like, can you read this word, yes or no? And, and actually, the reality of that is, is not a binary, right? It's, it's, a, it's a spectrum, or not even a spectrum, a kind of 3D field of different things and different abilities. And, you know, like, also, when I went out to Japan, I was teaching English, and people would ask me questions and, you know, place total trust in me because I was a native speaker and I would be really aware that like I wasn't sure about some of these things that I was saying or that you know that, that I would be asked a question I'd give an answer as best as I could but it wasn't I wasn't certain about it we sort of rely so much on these labels of like someone who is if you are a native speaker you can do everything that's possible to do within the language I mean that's that's an exaggeration but you know what I mean like
0: yeah, yeah, if we, if we yeah, the word that you use, you use the word at the start, and the word you use quite a bit in there is tools and toolbox. It's as if the language does give you the kind of keys and mechanics to kind of you know interact with a different kind of language or culture.
1: Yeah, and I think that then I also experienced that binary again with relationship to like inside versus out, like us versus them type thing. You know, like when I was in Japan at the beginning, I felt very um very much an outsider um and I think at a certain point I started to feel like I don't really like this feeling anymore like I would like to experience what it's like to be not an outsider anymore um and it was very clear to me that like learning the language was the best way to do that and I did that and yet the feeling of Being an outsider didn't really ever go away. Um, And I think there's various reasons for that. And some of them are like to do with my own (laughs) psychology issues, all of that stuff. And then I think another of them is that, you know, in Japan, like it is still very hard to be to see someone who is like visibly non-Japanese um and and treat them as one of the in crowds as it were you know i i think you know even people who are have lived in japan for kind of 30 years and have children out there and you know are so so fully fluent and so embedded in the culture kind of often report a similar type of experience i think and that yeah that's 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 interesting to me as a as a phenomenon. I mean, I think that obviously, like that, that exists within British society as well. But totally, it's, yeah. it's its contours are different, right? You mm.
0: talked about it, Japan being in this full body experience, wow. and particularly the ideas. And then we've spoken about being in and out of our, the culture, feel like an outsider. How then does this idea of immersion relate to that?
1: I, I think for me. <laughs> But the easiest way that I can think of to describe what immersion means for me is it's having no escape you know um I think that to define immersion as there being no escape is obviously like makes it sound extremely bleak but I think that it was really helpful for me because it just made me feel like I need I need to learn this I need to understand what is going on around me um and I suppose ultimately it comes down to this question of choice right it's like it's not it's not a a thing of like of choosing to log on to Duolingo or to you know go to a Japanese course and then kind of step out of the lesson it's 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 really feeling like this is all that there is around me, and so that you know, obviously it was a chosen, it was a decision to learn Japanese, but it it, it felt like a, a psychological necessity.
0: And that's really interesting because I mean, immersion could—I um, mean, they always say that that immersion is the best way to learn a language. You know, gap years, and things like that, like spend yeah. some time abroad, but immersion. It's, it's interesting you talk about it not totally being a pleasant experience but immersion some it's, it's an experience some people seek. and you say immersion is what happened to me you know it's not it wasn't a whether or not it was a choice either way sometimes it didn't seem to feel like a choice and i don't know if where this imagery comes from of forests and sort of feeling your way through i go kind of way there was a kind of a you're trying to feed, feel your way through this environment and you can see so far into the distance, sort of groping at branches and moving them out of the way. But mm-hmm. there, is a, there is a specific, uh, we'll, come back, we'll, come, we'll come back to Duolingo itself, but there is a game that you play, a language game, isn't there? Slime Forest. And yeah. it's these two words. As soon as, these were put, <laughs> as you wrote these, I couldn't help but kind of notice other instances of where it sounded like either Slime or Forest. And they kind of converged into, and I don't know if this is if this represented anything about this idea of being immersed.
1: That's so fascinating, I, like I have not thought about it, the kind of the symbolic value of, of slime forests, but it's like it's really true and, and slime does come up in, in like other other aspects. It, yeah, this forest, a forest in that you can't get out and slime in that it's like all over you and you, yeah. Um, I really like that, but but it, it wasn't. I mean, Slime Forest was just the name for this of this game that I was playing to learn the Japanese alphabet. Um, yeah, so yeah, you'd have to speak to the game creator and ask him what his deal was.
0: <laughs> well, way, it seems to relate this idea you spoke about at the start about mess. And yes. And of that ties into whereas, but he, you know. There's something messy about the world and language, and, and perhaps being Im- immersed and getting a way out to navigate that.
1: Mess is a big theme of this book. <laughs> in earlier drafts, when I was writing about Wittgenstein and trying to kind of find a way of bringing him into the story, there was more more talk about his psychology and, and the, his experience of mess and being a mess and how that related to me.
0: Well, I mean, the structure is really important, isn't it, to the book? And either you know the way that the book is structured, you you, I can't, you don't get a sense of what really the book is going to be because you do talk about you know talk about experiences, and you don't really get a sense of. It's it, ultimately, I thought it was gonna kind of, you know, it's a memoir, effectively. I thought it was a mm. piece of really brilliantly effective life writing, and you don't get a sense of time or anything like that. It's such a this is the thing, such an imagistic experience as very much kind of within the kind of i don't know if this is this is how you, how if you intended to do that but you place us in you, you i guess you immerse immerses in the moment with yourself and i just don't know if there's any particular experiences that happened to you in japan um uh, that, that that you might want to talk about um you kind of you know people you meet and some of the kind of perhaps the more immersive experiences
1: yeah well thank you for saying that i really glad to hear that and I think what I wanted to do with this book was really hone in on the absolute particulars of language learning and that you know the very like very specific things personal experiences as a kind of portal to accessing something was in universal in a way you know but because the universal thing is that the universal thing is these particular unique experiences um, and it it took me a while to sort of realize a world of like writing it and kind of figuring it out that I really needed to go very granular you know and 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 very kind of personal um and to talk quite openly about Like various things, um, you know, mistakes that I made, like ways that I was an idiot, things that I now look back on and think, oh, my God, Um, falling in love, um, having like bad sex. And I think that, you know, so many people have said to me with respect to language learning, like, oh, I only learnt German because I met a German guy and we fell in love or whatever you know these kind of very very um unique experiences but at some point I sort of realized that I'd heard so many people saying these that, things that they I had chats with people at parties about those things but but nobody was really writing about that stuff or they were writing about it as a romance but something so Distinct to language and and the language learning experience, and, and and I think what I really wanted to do was make it clear that all of those like aspects of experience in life that we might think are unglamorous or like too personal are all are themselves a part of learning a language and learning a culture, mm. and and maybe the most important part in a way. And so I felt like. You know, even if it was embarrassing to have (laughs) my dad and potential clients and all of these, you know, people reading my book, reading these particular descriptions, that it was something that I needed to do to make it work.
0: You speak at times about, you see Japan as a man, I think is the way you put it. Mm-hmm. um and there is something in here about relationships and obviously you have a relationship when you're in japan with uh they call him Y. and there's something about and you talk about john balby and the attachment theory i think there's some is there something in here then about you know because you do talk about as you've said instances about your relationships that you have is there something in here about relationships as well um you know what is 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 this really a part of it, a way to kind of get closer to that?
1: It's it's the easier. (laughs) I mean, I I think that, (laughs) yes, it is, because, again, like, it comes back, for me, at least to this very embodied view of language, I think, and language that doesn't really exist in the abstract. It only exists between people and within relationships, right? And and I think I was particularly conscious of that when I was in Japan. I was really conscious of, yeah, my relationship to Japanese and how it was made up of all these kind of individual interactions, but also sort of took on its own holism in a sense. I used to have real, so, I was in a relationship with this person. Why? And I used to have, you know, really asked myself, like, do I like him? Or do, like, am I in love with him? Or am I just in love with Japanese? And there would be days when I. <laughs> wow, <laughs>
0: cracky.
1: You know, which is ridiculous. Looking, I mean, it's so ridiculous. Like back, it's like, of course, I was in love with him. But, but it, you know, it. <sighs> It was so new, this this thing this, this Japanese thing was so new that I didn't quite know how it all fitted in, fitted in I, I, I don't know. you know it, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, and this is sorry again, this is finish time, when you are speaking a language that you were totally fu- fluent in, it becomes totally invisible to you, right? Whereas in Japan, the language itself was so visible so visible and i was so obsessed with it that i think at times like that became more visible to me than the people who were speaking it or or i, or I wasn't sure how to separate them all out you know it was all just a, a
0: mess <laughs> i think yeah well it's it's difficult isn't it i think um it, 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 you know i get that question of do I, do I love japan or do i love this man <laughs> I guess it's, it's 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 kind of putting things in. I guess it's you know this like you put it in things in categories, categories. I guess, um, and it's difficult questions. And you know, love. You know, perhaps love and language is is quite closely related because they're kind of very unquantifiable phenomena, and so kind of close to the the body as well. It's not always you know we can't we can't quantify what's going on. Sometimes I don't think. And I thought that's what the book spoke about as well. We can't quantify or classify or qualify all our experiences in language. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, we can't quantify them. And I think that I wanted to write about the experiences that weren't linguistically quantifiable, you know, a lot of the time. And and I don't know, I, I, which I suppose is why it had to be quite imagistic or quite kind of novelistic in some ways you know yes but, you know i think that i've never really worked with like constraints in this way before and a lot of people talk about how writing under a certain constraint can be really helpful um and i i def- although the, the the concept of this book sounds quite crazy maybe or or intricate or arcane as my mother once put it when when it's described like I think once once I was kind of running with it like it was so helpful and one of the reasons that it was so helpful was that I think there's a real variety of different experiences that I talk about in this book and a lot of them pull in totally different directions you know like I'm so in love with Japanese and and everything about it one moment and I really hate it the next and felt so frustrated and so full of shame you know all of this stuff and that feels very true to my experience and I wanted to get that across but at the same time I think if it had just been one long essay i would have, or, you know or, or not had the structure that it did i would have felt too crazy to to to, to sort of dis- describe it in that way or just too like there wasn't enough of a through line and i think having these these 50 different essays gave me the the freedom to sort of really go off in one direction for one bit and then but not feel bound to then kind of backtrack on that with the other bits you know just to just to say in one bit like I'm feeling really frustrated I hate this language mm, and then yeah. in the next one be like I love this language and, yeah. and not to kind of have to find the sum total of them and I think in the end I'm quite pleased with you know I, I feel like if you were to put this book, this book in a blender the, the <laughs> juice that comes out is like a close representation of how I do feel about Japan. And that feels like something that, like it was a balance, but in the end, I kind of got
0: Yeah, so, so interesting. Um, and I guess, I guess it does provide a way then for you to quantify experience. There is, you know, it's a numerical title, isn't it? 50 sounds. It, it's a, it is a fantastic book. And we can't wait to see where you go next. Winner of the FitzCorado 2020 Essay Prize, 50 sounds. Thank you very much for joining me, Polly. Thank
1: you very much. It's been an absolute
0: pleasure. Okay, Series 2, Episode 1, Done and Dusted. Join me next time when I'm going to be joined by Kalisa Ray, the American poet who's going to be talking about her first collection, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat. Until then, please give the Rippling Pages podcast, social media pages a follow at rippling underscore pages that's both on twitter and instagram and if you want to get in touch please give us an email at ripplingpagespod at gmail.com until then thank you for listening